Nashville. In a way, the heart, the atmosphere of joy and singing was among the people. So that's kind of the background of this psalm. Now, what we're going to learn today is two things. First of all, we're going to learn that God is gracious. God is gracious. That's the first point in the sermon. God is gracious. When, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, Shemvabet is the Hebrew word for restored. And that word refers to bringing something back or returning something. And so within the context of this verse, it is a moment in time when God set free the nation of Israel from bondage to the Babylonians. Can you imagine for a moment being freed from bondage? You're, and maybe some of these, some had died in captivity, but the generations that were behind them would have known this. And can you imagine after 70 years of bondage and oppression and hard work and toil and probably terrorizing the Israelites, can you imagine that moment, that moment when God said, okay, that is enough. I am now going to release you and you're going to go back to Jerusalem. Can you imagine? Just think about uh, leaving a situation in which you were in bondage and coming out and going, yes, yes. Of course, there would be songs of joy in their heart because God had done something. God had been gracious to them. God had led them out of captivity and they must have felt like a huge weight lifted off their shoulders. So you can imagine there wasn't somebody walking out of Babylon going, they were happy. The Babylonian army, like the Assyrian army, were brutal. And so here you have a situation where God has orchestrated the release of his nation so that they can go back. Notice, we were like those who dream. Halam, not an actual dream, not like you're sleeping. But the Israelites had had a temporary theophany of God, if you will, is contained in this word, a temporary theophany of God in which they were like, this is too good. This is too good to be true. But God has done this. God has freed us. God has let us leave this place of captivity. And so, of course, of course, this is going to be an uplifting psalm. It's going, they're going to be just joyful. It's going to be a, a, a time of joy. You could hear them maybe uh, laughing as they're leaving Babylon the Persian king finally released them and over, overthrew the, the Babylonians. And so he says, you guys can go back. And you're going, yes, yes, we're going home. We're going home. And you could see them with all of their joy and all of their, their jubilance running back to Jerusalem because they're so happy. Leslie Allen, in his commentary, wrote this. They look back to a turning point in their fortunes. The reestablishment of worship of the believing community in Jerusalem after the Babylonian It was a dream come true. It marked a sharp reversal 
of the harsh reality of their former distress. Let me ask you a question. Do you remember the day that you trusted in Christ? You've heard it before. I'll say it again. The chaplain led me to this little church in the middle of Fort Sam Houston, San Antonio, Texas. And he walked me down to the front of the church and he shared with me the gospel. Both my grandmothers talk about it. It was like at that moment I realized for the first time in my life that I needed to trust in Christ. There was a moment of jubilation. I mean, just like, am I saved? And the chaplain, Terry Burlingham, got in touch with him years later, told him I was a pastor, and he was all excited about it. You know, and then life comes in. You start out with that joyful moment. And then you get along in your Christian walk, and sometimes the joy can just erode. It might be a good idea to go back to that moment that you trusted in Christ when everything was forgiven, because you realize at that moment, you realize that God has forgiven everything that you've ever done. You've been released from the bondage of sin. And one of the one of the outflows of that is that we want to praise him. We want to worship him. We want to please him with our lives. And so I think sometimes we need to go back and we need to revisit that moment that we got saved because I do know life happens. I do know life gets difficult. That was, I can't remember now, 81. I can't do the math. 40-something years ago when I trusted in Christ, I've had good days and I've had bad days. But I can tell you this. God has always been with me through the storm. And there's been times I've failed. There's been times I've failed to be joyful even in the midst of hardship and trial. And you can just imagine here, brothers and sisters, these Israelites being released and how much joy there was going on. They, they, had, they had been delivered from this dominion of difficulty and hardship. Psalm 107.1 says this, I'll give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Say that with me on three, for he is good. One, two, three. He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. We need to be more thankful in our lives. And I'll tell you, everybody in here, you've been blessed. You know it. You've been blessed. I've been blessed. God gives us what we do not deserve and so I can be joyful and grateful this morning, even in the midst of sadness and hardship that you may be going through. But I'll tell you this. God has been so gracious. And we need to be thinking about what our response is to his grace. And by the way, we're going to look at the response now. So... Here, the Israelites had been released from captivity. Then their mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Of course it was. 
Of course it was. It would be suspect if it was anything else. That means they wouldn't have been grateful to God, but they were very grateful because God had done something that only God could do. He did it through a Persian king, but he did it anyway. And so it would be abnormal. It would be abnormal for the Israelites to walk out of Babylon and go, okay, it's time to go home. No. Hey, man, it's time to go home. People high-fiving, people jumping, laughing. Of course they were filled with joy. Something had happened that hadn't happened in 70 years. God did something for the nation of Israel. And of course the natural response to that would be laughter and joy and jubilation. But by the way, if you read Psalm 126, joy is mentioned three times here. It kind of reminds me of, of James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials. Remember that one. That's, that's a tough one. We're going to fall into a bunch of trials, but in the midst of those trials, we call it joy. We say we're going to be joyful, and we've all failed at that at times. So really, when we gather here on Sunday morning, we should be joyful. We are redeemed people. Do you realize that you are a redeemed person? Jesus has paid for your sin in full and for mine. And because of that, and simply because of that, we should bust in these doors every Sunday morning with an air of joy. Good to see you this morning, Kent. Good to see you, David. It should be just this joyful moment when we realize that redeemed people meeting with redeemed people who have had their sins forgiven get a chance to come and worship an awesome God. Isn't that right? All of us have been benefactors. Nobody... I don't think this is wrong at all. We were talking before church about painting this black and putting strobe lights on and having a smoke machine come up. No. There's nothing wrong with this at all. In fact, I've, I've been known to raise my hand during the singing of a song. There's nothing wrong with that at all. There is something, however, this can be faked. This can be faked. But when it comes from the heart of a person who has come into the presence of God, who has seen the glory of God, then there's the natural response to that is an element of joy. Be sure to say this. Okay. This is in my notes. said, be sure to say this. If you're by nature, if you're by nature a person who is always negative, who is always down, who is always criticizing others, who is always just generally negative. Let me, let me say something. That is, a, that is an indication of a spiritual issue. That is an indication of a spiritual issue which needs to be resolved. Because we've all been the benefactors of God's love and his grace and his mercy. And our persona should be joy and jubilation. Last 
Sunday, Rosemary said, if there's joy in your heart, please notify your face. <laughs> I like that. I like that. That's good. Smile. One pastor told his congregation, please show teeth a little more. Smile. It's good. But if our lives are constantly marked by a joyless state, it could be a sign of a spiritual problem. And, and I get it. We all go through periods. We all go through periods where it doesn't always seem joyful. And I've, I've used Della Hall before in my first church. I'll never forget that lady. She smiled even though things were crumbling around her. You wouldn't even have known it. She would come into choice, church smiling. Good morning, Brother Mike. She was from the South. I love the South language too, by the way. Even though she had all this bad stuff going on in her life, she always had a smile on her face, and I thought, boy, I'm really stunted in my growth. Think about what God has done for you. Think about what God has done for you. Think about what he's done for you and how he has helped you through this life, and it should bring us to a place of joy and just be happy, be happy. We were calculating the other night. I'll be, I really don't want to tell you, but I'm going to tell you. I'll be 64, 64 next month. And I started calculating. If I live to be 84, I have 20 years left. I don't want to live it like a sourpuss. I want to live it joyfully. I may not have good days, I get that, but I want to be joyful mostly. And, and, and it's okay to have fun and laugh. This is what these people were doing. God had done something in their heart and changed them radically, not only physically, but apparently spiritually. And this is pretty awesome. So maybe go home and look at things this afternoon and say, you know what, God, I need to be more joyful. Uh, I want to grow closer to you, and, and part of growing closer to you is, is realizing that I live in your presence, and I'm going... One lady in my last church said, joy is something you choose. And I would agree with that. Joy is, a, is something you choose. And let me tell you this. Satan wants to rob you of your joy. And this woman told me, you make the decision to be joyful or not. And I think that's pretty, pretty good. You just have to get to a point where you say, you know what, Satan? I am not going to give you a foothold in my life. I am not going to allow you to rob me of my joy. I'm going to praise God no matter what's happening in my life. I'm going to praise you. And so we get that attitude in our hearts that this is what we're going to do from... Uh, January 20, uh, 22, 2023, this day, from this day forward, I am going to choose joy. And I'm going to praise God for everything that happens in my life. And of course, James says, count it all joy when you follow into trials, because those trials are producing endurance and steadfastness. You go back and read James. That's in there. 
Not only is God gracious, but he does great things witnessing. This is kind of dabbling into next week's sermon to some degree. Now notice this. Then they said among the nations. This is the Israelites when they, they're, leaving, they're leaving captivity, harsh conditions. They're leaving. They're praising him. They're singing. I don't know. They might have been dancing a little bit. I don't know if that offends Baptists, but they might have been. They might have been dancing a little bit as they're going out. Then they said among the nation, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. Notice, they didn't keep what God had done quiet. Notice that. They did not keep what God had done quiet. In, a, in essence... They were witnessing. They were sharing about Yodehavev. That's what the Israelites would have called him, Yodehavev, Yahweh. We have opportunities. We have opportunities every day to share the gospel. It's as we get better and better at identifying those moments and I'll say most of the time we have opportunities to share the gospel at some point during the week. We, we could do that. Some point during the week, you could probably share the gospel with somebody. Not, to, not so much to cram it down their throat, but by the way we reflect our lives. See, the Israelites were all full of joy, and they wanted to share it with everybody. And by the way, when I got saved, I went back to my buddies that I had been going out partying with. And I went back and I was expecting them to say, that's awesome. Well, they didn't. They looked at me like I was from Mars. I said, I just got saved. The chaplain, I was all excited. And looked at me like, what? Foreign. I got with them. I was about a 15-minute-old baby in, baby, Christ, baby in Christ. And I shared the gospel with them, and they said, yeah, that's okay. Just, we don't want to hear that. We live in a time when people want to hear the gospel. This is the worst... I, it, it, and I, many of you are older than me, probably have worse seasons, eras. But this seems to be the best time right now to share the gospel. People need to hear it. And we have great opportunities. And, and, it, and it's not that we have to memorize vast portions of Scripture. We can just simply share, this is what my life was before Christ. This is what it was the day I trusted in Christ. And this is how it is in Christ. And by the way, God loves you. Quote John 3.16. I bet you everybody in this room knows John 3.16 by heart. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's the gospel. And then the Holy Spirit will teach you what you need to say when you need to say it. 
and then share the gospel. And this is the other thing. You're not responsible for the result. The Israelites just threw it out there. He's done great things for you, and he's done great things for us. That's a witness. Tell what God has done in your life. Oh, I used to be this way, and boy, the day I trusted in Jesus Christ, boy, my life changed. You know, that's better than any sermon I could ever preach. Do you know why? Because they're not hearing it from a pulpit. They're hearing it from a person. And we win people God uses people to win people. Yes, he can use the pulpit, but this is the, this is the locker room where the pastor is preaching God's word and you go out. Okay, Notre Dame's got us by 14. Let's get out there and get them. That's not what it was. But you go out and you share the gospel, loving people, showing what it means to be a believer in Christ. And the Israelites give us a just... Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them, and the Lord has done great things for us. This is something that we need to be very, very careful about. The Israelites telling everybody. But we need to be careful here. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. I think that's a big verse. Paul wrote this in Colossians. Make the most of every opportunity. And brothers and sisters, there's been times I have not. And those times you have to repent and ask for forgiveness. And then say, Lord, give me one more chance. Bring me in from the bullpen one more time. Let your conversation always be full of grace. Grace and mercy. That's what we've been doing. Grace and mercy. They're not going to get it the first time you share the gospel. They may not get it the second time, but you can tell, you can show them the love of God as you love them. And you share God's grace with them. Can my sins really be forgiven? Yes, they can be. Well, how do you know when you're really saved? I, I think that God will give you what you need when you need it. I, I'm foolish enough to believe that. And if you and if this is the other thing, when you're witnessing and you really don't know what to tell the person, say, you know what, I'm going to go talk to my pastor, I'm going to talk to my deacons, talk to my Sunday school teacher, and I'll get back with you. Nothing wrong with that at all. Because you don't want to give them an answer that's wrong. You want to try to give them an answer that's right. And seasoned with salt. Do you know why salt was so important? It was preservative. And so... We need to be attractive, not physically attractive, but spiritually attractive so that people can see Christ in us, so that you may know how to answer everyone. I've seen witnessing done a lot of different ways. Peter Kendrick, um, that was when I was pastoring in Ohio. Peter Kendrick took us to McDonald's and he was doing an evangelism class. He's pretty smart. He's pretty smart. We saw a guy in line. There was, I can't remember what I had. I probably had a Big Mac and fries and a Coke or something. I don't know. We were standing in line and there was this gentleman right in front of Peter Kendrick. And Peter Kendrick looks at the guy and said, excuse me, sir in line at McDonald's 
it was the 80s or 90s, I can't remember, but he said, do you know of any good churches in the area? I never heard of that one before. And he goes, well, um, he said there's, he gave three or four churches. He said, do you, do you go to church, sir? Oh, yeah, I go to the, I think it was a Methodist at that time. And, he goes, and who's the pastor at the church? Peter Kendrick had already looked up all the churches in that little area. And the man gave a preacher who was no longer there. He shared the gospel with him in line at McDonald's and didn't go like this, but he just started witnessing to him right there in line. And the guy said, well, you gave me something to think about, and he gave him a pamphlet, and that was it. That was, that was good. I liked the way he did that. Because he was, he was drilling down into a basic opportunity to share the gospel. Then I was with another guy from the Ohio State Assembly. And his approach to evangelism horrified me. I was kind of shocked. I was taken back. We were at a restaurant. And our waitress came up, and he just started bombarding this waitress brutally. And I was like, whoa. I get it. He's all excited about evangelism. But telling a waitress that she's going to hell while she's trying to serve our food is a little far. There's a right way to do evangelism, and there's a wrong way to do evangelism. One way is to just love people. Tell them, this is what Jesus did in my life. It's not, it's not difficult. I think we make it more difficult than it is. What do I do if they reject me? That's okay because they rejected Christ. They're going to reject, they're going to reject our message. We've got to get used to that. But you love them enough to at least tell them the message and share the gospel. This next one, not only had they witnessed, but there was prayer involved. And you see verse 4, and you go, what are they talking about? Well, this, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. What this is, is really them asking God to bless them. By the way, this is a dry wadi bed in southern Beersheba which is exactly what they're, what they're talking about so you see this what's missing from this is a flow of water and so what they're praying or asking God to do they're asking God Lord pour out your blessing on us you've taken us from here we praise you we love you and of course Israel will go up and down with this the rest of the time. But at this point, they're asking God to let the waters flow and flood us with the blessings. The streams of the Negev. Lord, let it flow. Listen, let me, let, let, me, let me tell you this. There's nothing wrong at all. There's nothing wrong at all for you praying that God will bless you. 
What they were wanting was the ability to do their crops, which he'll get into in just a minute. Lord, you know I deserve a million dollars. That's probably not the right blessing, right? Those televangelists are really bad at this. I don't know how you can justify a $1.5 million home for sharing the gospel. Newt Larson, my friend at the chapel, never took 80000 or more. And he pastored two churches that were 18,000 members apiece. And actually, if you go back to Ohio, look at my house and look at Newt Larson's house, they were exactly the same. And he drove a 10-year-old car. And he pastored this massive church. You, if you ask God, I mean, you could ask him to bless you, and maybe God will actually give it to you. And it could be a bad thing, even though you think it's a good thing. But ultimately, there's nothing at all wrong asking God to bless your life. Lord, give me opportunities this week to share the gospel. When was the last time you prayed for that blessing? Lord, give me an opportunity. And by, by the way, this is a very generous church. You guys have been very generous to me and Audrey. And we go back to the doctor Thursday and hopefully... Uh, She'll be getting back to worship here soon. This is a very generous church, and I know you guys and gals are generous, and I appreciate that. And so I believe God wants to bless this church. I believe God wants to grow this church. And I, I just, just, just encourage you to get out there, share the gospel, and this is a good verse. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that and I love this verse because it kind of trees about what the blessing should be. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. We live to do good works so that people may see our good works and glorify God. In other words... Ask God to bless your hands. Ask God to bless your ministry. Ask God to bless your life. Nothing wrong with that. But also say, Lord, I ask that you bless me with the opportunity to share the gospel, the opportunity to be nice to somebody this week, to be caring to somebody this week. Uh, go and, 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 and again, you guys and gals are really good at sharing. I get it, and, I pr and I'm... I'm proud of y'all for that. Not just for me, but for others. I, I know what goes on here. And I know you're, you have a heart for people. I, I know that you love that. And I think God blesses that and will bless it. <sighs> Lastly, rewards. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing the sheaves with him. Now, there's a lot of interpretations of this text. One of them was uh, written by the Biblical Studies Group. They wrote this. The dependence on rain for watering plants, the uncertainty of the quality or the quantity 
and timing of the rains and possibly uh, the possibility of crop failure due to pest and disease appear to have kept farmers in a gloomy mood during sowing. And that's, that really was part of the agricultural system, but he uses this reaping and sowing, sowing and reaping. We see that again in the New Testament. Um, that's one possibility. Maybe that's what this author meant was these farmers will go out and, but I, I don't know about that one. I, that seems a bit of a kind of a stretch. I put this up here to show you there's several ways to interpret a passage of Scripture. I think it's metaphorical in the sense that they went into Babylon mourning and crying. And the seed of difficulty and hardship, God pulled them out of that. And then there was this moment of harvest, of joy, of jubilation. And, of course, they brought all the Israelites out. We reap what we sow. This is a... Sometimes things happen in our lives because of what we seeded before. And I'm not talking about charismatic stuff. I'm not talking about charismatic stuff here. If we seed hate and anger and all of these things that are counter to the gospel, then it shouldn't surprise us when we start reaping the same things in our own lives. And here, this author is saying that you go out, and there may be a note of humility here too, sowing in tears. Whatever we put in the ground, we should expect the same harvest. So if you sow doubt, then you'll harvest that. Sowing and reaping is a biblical concept, not only in the Old Testament, particularly in the New Testament. And by the way, the sower went out and scattered the seed. Jesus used that in an evangelistic sense. You notice, he's not worried so much about this. He knows he needs to throw the seed, and some of that seed will stick, and some of it will grow. It's an evangelistic tool. All we're required to do is go out and throw the gospel out. Not everybody's going to accept it. I'm, I'm more inclined to believe people will reject it rather than accept it. So I go into that, but there are times I go into it and I go, you know what, I think God's going to do something here. Our job, our job is just to throw it out. But also, we throw things out in our lives. We sow from our own life. We sow things. And it should not shock us when this stuff comes to harvest. Quite amazing. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. But it shall accomplish what I please, God says. And it shall prosper in the things for which I sent it. 
preaching on a Sunday morning, God says my word will not return void. Maybe 90% of you, this won't affect at all. But there's that 1% or 2% that may be watching this that may have a huge impact on their life. Same way in your life. You go out and you share the gospel. You don't know what it's going to do. You don't have to worry about that because God's got it. All we got to do is just go out and love people and share the good news of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion and that all of their sin can be paid for like yours. And, and we do that with a smile and with love. 